Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. We are going to start a new series today in the life of David. How many of you were at the 8 o'clock service this morning? If you didn't make it, go to 11. I'm not going to sit down for a week after that, but I needed it, so it's extraordinarily good. The whole counsel of God is what Valley Baptist does. Let me give you a little historical context. We're going to have a number of maps today. I'm going to try and give you a feel of what's going on, just to give you a little history about this book and what led up to this book. Uh, God used Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt in about 1445 B.C. So almost 1,500 years before Christ, uh, Egypt, Israel came out of Egypt. Moses did that. And that's recorded in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So we have those four books that talk about Egypt, uh, Israel coming out of Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness 40 years, and God used Joshua, Moses' successor, to lead them across the Jordan River into the Promised Land about 1405 B.C. So out of Egypt, 1445, into the land, 1405. Then the book of Joshua really covers about 25 years from about 1405 to about 1380, about 25 years to conquer the land at that point. Joshua dies roughly about 1380 B.C., and then we have the book of the Judges. God raises up a judge at a time to rule over Israel and provide leadership for them. That period of time, the book of the Judges covers about 300 to 330 years. So about three centuries uh, and a little bit more. If you've read the book of the Judges, you understand that it was a period of moral chaos, tremendous anarchy, and the last verse in the book summarizes the whole book. It says, everyone did what was right in their own so there was no moral standards during that period of time. Then we come after the book of Judges to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel records how God raised up the last judge and the first prophet, Samuel. Samuel was both the last judge and the first prophet, and he introduced the monarchy in Israel. So 1 Samuel records God is now going to interact with his people differently than he has before. Prior to the book of Samuel, God raised up one person and only one person to lead Israel, both spiritually and politically, Moses, Joshua, or any one of the judges. There was only one leader that combined the roles of spiritual leadership and political or civic leadership. First Samuel illustrates that now God is going to relate to people by using two new offices, the office of prophet and the office of king. Before 1 Samuel, there were no kings and there were no prophets as a class of people. They just had one leader. Now we're going to see the prophet and the king. So from now on throughout Israel history, the king has the exclusive political or civil rule and the prophet provides the spiritual leadership for the nation. So people and king are now subject to God's word as it comes through the prophet. Of course, we have the word of God here, so we don't need prophets today because God has already spoken. 
So Samuel is the last judge, the first prophet. He's born about 1121 B.C., somewhere in that neighborhood. First and second Samuel were originally one book. When they translated this to Septuagint in about 250 B.C., the Septuagint, that means 70. They had 70 Jewish scholars that translated uh, the, uh, the Old Testament, and they made it two books at that point in time. I guess the scrolls weren't big enough for one at that stage. So there are three major characters in the, in the book of Samuel, the first and second Samuel. The prophet Samuel, Saul, the first king, and David, the second king of Israel. So those are the main human characters. The central character in all of scripture is always Yahweh, God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's always the central character. So the Bible tells us that Yahweh is a God of grace that God is a God who initiated a human relationship, a relationship with humans. However, most of you know that you have free will. If you don't raise children, and they will let you know that they have free will, right? And we are free to accept or we're free to reject a relationship with the God of the Bible. So the Bible records what happens to people and what happens to nations when they trust and obey God's word or when they reject and disobey God's word. Deuteronomy 28 is a passage that Pastor Roger quoted this morning. There's 68 verses in that chapter. The first 14 talk about the blessings of obedience and from verse 15 to 68 talk about the cursings of disobedience. There's about four times as many verses on the bad things that happen when you disobey as there are the good things that happen when you obey. So here's our first principle for today. How we respond to God's grace determines our destiny. How we respond to God's grace determines our destiny. Obedience brings blessing in life. Disobedience brings punishment and death. So God is a God of grace who initiates a relationship with us, but we have the choice of what we're going to do with that opportunity. Now, the nation of Israel disobeyed God's word, rejected God as their king. And they demanded in 1 Samuel that Samuel anoint a human king over them. God was their king. They rejected God and they said, no, we want a human king. We want to be like all the pagan nations around us. And God's whole intention was to that Israel would be unlike all the nations around. God wanted Israel to be a showcase so that people that looked at Israel would see the blessings of being ruled by God as opposed to being ruled by humans. Much better to be ruled by God than to be ruled by humans. However, most of you are old enough to know that God will sometimes give you your own way. Yes? Say yes. You also know that when God gives your own way, that is both an act of love and it's also an act of judgment. Because your own way is not that good. Just saying. God honors our choices even when they produce painful consequences. So God told Samuel, listen to the people. They want a human king. They're rejecting me as king. Go with it. Anoint them a human king. So Saul got anointed by Samuel as king in 1051 BC. They now have a human king. And Saul began to consolidate this loose confederation of 12 tribes into a more centralized monarchy. 
Of course, monarchy means rule by one, mono, mono, monarchy, rule by one. So Saul began to rule in 1051, and he began well, but he quickly rejected God's commands. He quickly rejected Samuel, God's prophet. And after multiple incidents of flagrant disobedience, God decided, I'm going to remove Saul from being king. And God instructed Samuel, you're going to go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem and anoint one of his sons as king. And of course, Samuel goes through the first seven, and they can't find David because he's the shepherd boy uh, in the fields. And so he anoints David when he's probably between 12 and 15 years old. Now, clearly, David is not ready to be king at 12 years old or 15 years old. God has an extensive training program in place to prepare David to be king. And as most of you know, the same is true of us. Here's the principle. God enrolls every Christian in his training academy that is designed to make us more like Jesus. God enrolls every, which means everyone in this room is enrolled. He didn't ask you if you wanted to be enrolled. When you came to faith in Christ, you were enrolled in God's training academy. And the purpose of that training academy is to make you more like Jesus. Now here's the good news and here's the bad news. The good news is that none of God's children can fail his training academy. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So you can't fail. The bad news is that no one graduates from the academy until they die. And no one can drop out before then. If you try and drop out, you get to repeat the course. <laughs> again. And again. And again. And as someone who's repeated coursework for decades, I can tell you it gets harder when you try and drop out. Just take it and finish it and learn what you need to learn. In God's training university, course repetition is normal. Some of you are still taking the same coursework you did 30 years ago. It's not that we are failing it, it's that God has increasing standards of competency that he wants us to grow into. He wants us to be more and more like Jesus, and so the training never ends, and that's a blessing. So God's goal is always the same. I want you to be my, like my son, Jesus Christ. Now, God's primary training tools to make you like Jesus are trials and troubles, pain and problems, challenge and conflicts, and most of all, other people. Those other people. God is not an ivory tower professor. God teaches us through his word, but he also does a lot of on-the-job apprenticeship training, right? God does a lot of field training, a lot of hands-on, get dirty, learn to trust and obey Jesus one day at a time in the muck and the mud of ordinary life. Here's a truth. I don't know that I'm comfortable with it, but it is true. Every single day of your life and my life, God has a lesson plan already written and lessons that he wants you to learn every single day. So the question is, are we sleeping in God's classroom? 
he will wake you up. So David has a leadership training program, just like you and I do, before he's crowned king. And there are three stages in David's training program. And it takes two decades to get him ready to be crowned, right? First training program, he's a shepherd in the fields, probably from age 10 to roughly 17 or 18. Number two, he's an attache, he's attached as a courtier in Saul's court, that's probably three or four years, 17 to 20. And thirdly, and longest, he's a fugitive in exile for about 10 years, from age 20 to 30. And at age 30, as we're going to see, he's crowned over Judah. So David's the youngest of eight sons. And it seems that his childhood can't have been terribly remarkable. When you, when you look at behind the scenes, it seems like he was overlooked, ignored, and isolated by his own family. In that era, you began shepherding at a very young age. So it's probably likely that by the time he was 10, 12 years old, he had sole responsibility for the flock and he spent a lot of time in the fields away from his family. Shepherding is usually done solo. So he had a lot of time alone with sheep. <clears throat> sheep are not necessarily good conversationalists. So he had a lot of time to listen to God, to listen to God's still small voice. And if you ever want to listen to God's still small voice, <clears throat> I can promise you a surgery rule two will give you time to listen, right? God has ways to kind of slow us down and turn the hearing aid on. That's happened to me a number of times. Shepherding is not only solo, it's also relentless. Shepherding is 24-7 because sheep need their shepherd how often? every single day. There was no vacation. So David didn't have any vacation from shepherding. <clears throat> As our own Holly Colhane reminds us in her Presence Point series, sheep and people need daily provision, ongoing protection, and constant presence. So God is training David to be a king. He's training David to shepherd people by having him shepherd sheep. And shepherding taught David a lot, taught him to care, gave him compassion, taught him courage, and probably most importantly, taught him sacrificial service because sheep require a lot of sacrificial service. Here's the application for us. God gives us routinely small assignments, small assignments. He wants to see how we do with small assignments before he entrusts us with larger assignments. There's a scripture reference that says, faithful and little, faithful in much, right? The vernacular of that is flaky with little, flaky with much. God starts us off small and sees how we do. So in David's case, it was if you're faithful with sheep, you'll be faithful with people. I'm not going to entrust you shepherding my kingdom of Israel until you are trained with sheep. So the second part of David's training program is he becomes an attache or a courtier, if you will, in Saul's court. He's probably in his late teens. He kills the Philistine Goliath. He becomes a national hero, probably at 16, 17, 18. And he had to learn how to cope with the pressures of popularity, which is most people do not do well with popularity. They do not. Most people do not do well with money. Most people do not do well with power. It really is, can be very corrupting. So Saul has this national hero, killed Goliath. He attaches him to his staff. He becomes a field leader in the military, leads the army in and out. He learns the in and outs of government operations. He learns how to deal with powerful people in court situations. 
And this, of course, training is going to stand him in really good stead when he becomes king. So as David's popularity grows, he encounters another problem. Saul, the current king, becomes insanely jealous. And he tries to kill David on multiple occasions. I mean, kill him. Stick him with a spear. <clears throat> when someone wants to kill you and you're having dinner with them regularly, because you're expected to be in court, that can improve your prayer life. Believe me. You would not take uh, that next bite without you. I mean, when you pray over the meal, you keep your eyes open because there might be a spear coming your way, you know. So this initiates stage three of David's training regimen. He flees for his life and becomes a fugitive in exile for 10 years. For literally a decade, he's on the run from Saul with a price on his head. Austin's going to show you a map of David's travels to escape Saul, and you're going to notice an enormous amount of movement over this 10-year period. He's moving from one place to another place. All of this movement is largely in the Negev, which is the southern half of Israel. A lot of it's desert. A lot of it is really, really desolate. If you've been there, there's a lot of rocks and not much else. Uh, borders the land of the Philistines. So God is using trials and troubles to train David to depend on God in every circumstance. When you read the Psalms, and we're going to go through this in, in 2 Samuel and even part of uh, uh, Kings uh, later, you'll see that David faced death on a regular basis. And if God didn't rescue him, he would have been killed multiple times. He's got 400 troops with him plus all their families. So he now has to learn to provide for a lot of people. David learns self-control, and you know what he learns to do probably better than anybody? He learns how to pray. Do you think having your life in danger on a regular basis would improve your prayer life? I think it probably would. I don't think it would be, oh, Lord Jesus, you know, that toenail of mine, I, could you help? I, you'd be saying, if you don't come through, I'm dead. And you would be, right? So the last thing God wants to do, other than just train David to be prayer to be king, is during this period of time, he writes a good chunk of the Psalms. And when you read the Psalms, you understand that this is written by an individual who goes through the ups and the downs, the joys and the sorrows, the ecstasy and the depression, the anger, every human emotion is written in the Psalms. And God knows that he has to take David through that roller coaster so that those Psalms will bless us 3,000 years later and have been for the last 3,000 years. So God is going to entrust David with enormous responsibility as king over Israel. And God knows that unless David depends on the Lord for wisdom and strength, he's not going to faithfully lead God's people. So by the time 2 Samuel opens, Israel now, at this stage of the game, Saul is king, and they have been at war with the Philistines for decades. Saul has been reigning now for about 40 years. And his entire reign has been ongoing battles and raids with the Philistines. They emigrated from the Aegean Sea a number of centuries before this. And the problem with the Philistines is, is they have mastered iron smelting. So they can make iron weapons, and the Israelis can only work in bronze. And so it gives the Philistines a phenomenal military advantage at that point. 
So God's plan right now in today's lesson is he's going to use the Philistines to remove Saul as king because of his disobedience. Austin's going to show you a map of Israel from north to south, and you're going to see Mount Gilboa, where this battle took place way in the north of Israel. And you're going to see all the way to the south, Ziklag. Ziklag is where David's going to be at the same time this battle's taking place. So the Philistines invade Israel in 1 Samuel 31, the last chapter in the first chapter of 2 here. And they have a battle on Mount Gilboa. Israel's defeated, Saul is slain, and three of his sons, including Jonathan, are also killed. David has been in exile, running from Saul, way in the south of the Negev, down in Ziklag. That's deep in southern Judah. And while this battle going on in the north, David has his, the city he's been given, Ziklag, has been burned with fire by the, by the Amalekites. And so he is on a raid to uh, attack the Amalekites. The Amalekites burned the city, took all the possessions, took all the women and all the children, and left. So while the same battle with Saul is going on in Mount Gilboa in the north, David and his soldiers are tracking down the Amalekites. They attack them, they destroy their army, and they recover everything, especially their families. If you'll open uh, to 2 Samuel 2, or 2 Samuel yeah, uh, 2, and we're going to start in verse 1. Now it came about, I'm sorry, uh, you're going to start chapter 1, 2 Samuel chapter 1. Now it came about after the death of Saul. Saul's been killed in the last chapter of 1 Samuel. When David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziklag. And it happened on the third day, behold, a man came out from the camp of Saul with his to clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Then David said to him, from whence do you come? And he said, I have come from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the people have fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. What I want you to notice from this map is Mount Gilboa is about 80 miles north of Ziklag in the south. So this Amalekite walks about four days. In that era, you could walk about 20 miles a day, usually the maximum. So he comes and he tells David a story. He fabricates a story about how he himself king, killed King Saul. Now David doesn't know that this guy's lying to him. So he accepts that fact that this guy killed Saul. That's not true, but David doesn't know that. So this Miss Messenger, as proof, he brings Saul's chapelet, which he wears around his head. It's kind of a wreath, a gold wreath that he wore on his war helmet. And he brings Saul's golden armband to David. And so he's demonstrating, yeah, I was there. But he was lying. The fact is Saul was wounded by Philistine archers, but he fell on his own sword. Saul was the suicide. The Amalekite said, no, no, I killed him. He's thinking that David's going to be very impressed that he killed Saul, right? He's trying to get credit for this. Uh, when David and his men heard that Saul had been uh, defeated in battle, they tore their coats, they mourned all day, and wept until sundown. And David uh, has the Amalekite executed for killing the Lord's anointed. And it's a public statement to the entire nation that David was not Saul's enemy. And then you're going to see in the rest of this chapter that David composes a lament. It's a poem, if you will, an epic to commemorate Saul and Jonathan. It's an elegy, if you will, so to speak. 
and he, he commands that they teach it to the tribe of Judah so that they'll remember their first king. And this is really remarkable. Saul has been trying to kill David for 10 years. Saul is now dead. You think David would be thrilled, right? The person who's been trying to kill you is now dead. David is in mourning because he did not view Saul as his enemy. He had had opportunities to kill Saul before and didn't do it, right? It's interesting that even though David has already been anointed king over Israel and Judah, he let God deal with Saul. How many of you have people that you... Um, I'm not going to ask this question. <laughs> How many of you are willing to let God deal with those people in your life? How many of you wish God would hurry up? <laughs> well... This guy has been trying to kill David for over 10 years. And you're thinking, Lord, you anointed me king over the land at 12. When's the clock going to stop ticking? When am I going to get anointed, right? I've waited. This guy's tried to kill me and kill me and kill me again and again. And David never takes revenge. David never tries to kill Saul. He lets God deal with it in his time because the, David knew that the kingdom was not something to grasp. It was something not to take by force. It was something to get, trust God for. So David composes this lament. And the theme of this lament is how are the mighty fallen? And if you, when you read this, you'll find out that he's only recording the good things about Saul and Jonathan. He doesn't want their death to be uh, trumpeted in the streets of the Philistines. He curses the battlefield. He calls for a drought on the hillside of Mount Gilboa where they died. He praises Saul and Jonathan as being mighty warriors. Uh, and they fought many battles on behalf of Israel. Interesting that, that Jonathan is really between a rock and a hard place. His best friend is David and his dad is Saul. And his dad is trying to kill his best friend. And he's the crown prince. And he's loyal to both. That's a tough situation. Some of you have relatives like that, right? They're your relative, but that's all you have in common with them. That's interesting. How do you navigate that? Well, obviously Jonathan and David trusted the Lord to do that. But Jonathan was loyal and stayed by his father's side and fought him with the Philistines to the point of death, even though he knew that his father was disobedient to the Lord. David says, Saul and Jonathan were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. They were not only victorious warriors, they were very gracious people. They were loved by the nations. And Saul had many failures, but God had used him despite his failures to unify the tribes in the beginnings of a nation. So at this point in time, David is now 30. He's been on the run for 10 years. Jonathan, his best friend, has died with his dad on the Mount of Gilboa. At the time of this battle, Saul is about 72, and he's still in warfare, still carrying a sword. Jonathan, his oldest son, is probably in his mid-50s. So Jonathan's about 25 years older than David. They're best friends, but they're a whole generation apart. Jonathan's probably 52, 53, and David is 30 at this point in time. So... Saul had been anointed king in 1051. He reigned for 40 years. So right now it's 1011, 1011 BC. And that David and Jonathan had met 10 years earlier when David had kill, killed Goliath. They were best friends. 
They were fellow warriors and they were brothers-in-law because David had married Jonathan's sister named Michael, Saul's daughter. So Jonathan's the crown prince. He's supposed to inherit the throne. He recognizes that God had chosen David to be the next king, and he submits to that. That's tough, but it's really important for us to do. Someone once said that your disappointments are God's appointments. Because when you really want to do something and God says no, he has a different plan. God had a different plan for Jonathan, and he submitted to that, which is extraordinarily difficult, but extraordinarily important. So Jonathan and David have been best friends, and now that bond is broken in death. David composes this lament. He's teaching Israel that God-ordained leadership is to be honored and respected. Now, Saul is dead. David's been anointed king about 20 years before, maybe not quite 20 years before, 18. But the next steps to the throne are unclear. How do we do this transition? 2 Samuel 2, verse 1. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? Remember, David's still in Ziklag, down south. And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go up? And God said, To Hebron. So David went up from there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nalab the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Here's the principle. Always ask God's counsel before. That would be the key word. Before making decisions. And then do what he tells you. That's not a suggestion. When God tells you what to do, he is not making suggestions. He is giving commands. Always ask God's counsel before making decisions. I know that we are all good decision makers, and you and I make dozens and dozens of decisions on a regular basis. The number we pray for is significantly smaller than the number that we make, yes? How many of you believe that significant prayer before decisions would probably improve the quality of your decisions? Yeah, I know. We're just slow learners. So after the death of Saul, David is still down in Ziklag in southern Judah. That's technically enemy territory. That's technically Philistine territory. So David's from the tribe of Judah. He knows he needs to go home, but he doesn't know what city to go to because this city he goes to is going to be the nucleus of his future kingdom. So God tells David, go to Hebron, about 25 miles north of Ziklag and about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. Austin's going to show you a map of David's kingdom in Judah and Ishbosheth's kingdom. There we go. In uh, Israel. In the south, that's where David's kingdom is, Hebron is the most important city. Hebron's a city where Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah are all buried. Right? The tomb of the patriarchs is there today. The city of Hebron was the, was the inheritance of Caleb, and David's wife Abigail, of course, was the widow of a descendant of Caleb. Hebron's in the middle of his tribal homeland of Judah, so it's going to be really, really good because he has a real strong following there. And strategically, Hebron's in the highest point of ground. It's on a promontory in the Judean hill country, so it's very, very defendable. In that day and age, you really wanted to build your, 
uh, cities and a place where they defended. So David brings several hundred warriors with him and with them their spouses and their children. So there's probably several thousand people he moves from Ziklag up to Hebron. And as a matter of fact, there's so many of them, they have to live in multiple villages around them. Verse 4. The men of Judah came and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. Understand that at this point in time, Judah is in the south and Israel is in the north. The house of Israel in the north largely followed Saul, but David was from the tribe of Judah, so the people of this tribe are loyal to David. Everyone in Israel knows at this point that David has been anointed the next king. And David now moves to Hebron, and he's anointed for the second time by this tribe. He was anointed the first time by Samuel. And they told David, saying, it was the Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. David is asking what happened to Saul. He's been killed on Mount Gilboa. What happened to his body? What did they do with it? And they said the men of Jabesh Gilead had buried Saul. So when he found out what would happen to the bodies of Saul and his three sons, he, they told him that the people in this particular location buried Saul. And I'm going to have Austin show you a map of Jabesh Gilead, Beth Sheon, and Mount Gilboa. The, 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 the city of Jabesh is on the east side of the Jordan River. East side of the Jordan River. And this city was once besieged by the Ammonites. Saul had rallied the nation of Israel and defeated the Ammonites and saved this city. So the people of this city are really loyal to Saul. Because 40 years ago, he saved their bacon from invasion. They never forgot how Saul rescued him. When Saul and his sons were killed, the Philistines beheaded them and staked up their, fastened their bodies to a wall on the public square in the city of Beth Shean, which we have been there when we went to Israel. So the warriors from Jabesh Gilead risked their lives. They go northwest, they cross the Jordan River, they go to the city of Beth Shean, they take the bodies down in the middle of the Philistine encampment, right, and bring their bodies back to Jabesh, cremate them, and bury their bones. Which is the right thing to do, and it took incredible courage to do this. Verse 5. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord, because you have shown kindness to Saul your Lord and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I will also show you this goodness to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore... Let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead. Here's the political commentary. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Here's the principle. Citizens fail when they value loyalty to leaders more than loyalty to God. David is commending the citizens of Jabesh Gilead for showing loyalty to King Saul, even at the risk of their lives. And he says, since you've been valiant and loyal to Saul when he was king, I'm inviting you to be valiant and loyal to me because God has anointed me king. Now, it's really important that you understand why this is so politically significant. Jabesh Gilead is, Jabesh is not in the south, it's in the north. David is trying to establish loyalty in the north in order to unify these 12 tribes. 
He wants them loyal to him. And if he can get a, uh, an outpost of loyalty in the north, that's going to help his case to become king over the entire nation. So he wants to increase that. But we're going to find out next lesson that the people of Jabesh followed Abner. Abner is Saul's general. So the house of Jabesh says, we're loyal to Saul, even though we know that God anointed you king. That's why the point being, you shouldn't be loyal to people, you should be loyal to God first. If you knew that God had anointed David king, your loyalty would be then to obey God and follow David if you know that was God's will. But they said, no, we've got a history with Saul and we're more loyal to him as opposed to being loyal to God and to David at that. So they refused to acknowledge God's anointing of David. And we have this in our lives every day. There's many, many things in our world that cry out for your loyalty. Yes? Many people, many politics, many causes. There are more things that you can commit loyalty to and commit time to and get excited about, etc., etc. But all of them need to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You can fix more stuff on the planet, but if you're not about the king's business, you're not about eternity. You're spending time doing good stuff, but it's not eternal business. And that's the point. Verse 8. So Judah has crowned David as king over them. The northern tribes have not been idle. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and made him and brought him over to Mahanam. That's a city. He made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, that's the northern tribes, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Here's the principle. Leaders fail when they put their own interests ahead of God's interests. Power hates a vacuum. Right now in Israel, there is a power vacuum. Saul has been king for four decades. Most people in Israel don't remember another king before Saul. Saul is now dead. Jonathan is dead. As a matter of fact, all three of Saul's sons died with him on the mountain. Ishbosheth is the last living son of Saul. All Israel knows that David is God's choice to be the next king, but Abner, who's the commander of Saul's army, decides that he's going to be kingmaker, not God. So Abner is not only the commander of Saul's army, he was Saul's cousin. A little blood here, right? And he was the one who first brought David to Saul after David killed Goliath. Abner's not a real big fan of David. Abner was Saul's general, and he's the one who chased David for 10 years in southern Israel and failed to catch him. You've been chasing somebody for 10 years, you never caught him. They're probably not your best friend, okay? David also had publicly rebuked Abner 
for sleeping and not protecting Saul's life when David and Abishai had stolen Saul's spear. Let me give you a little backdrop. One of the times that Saul is chasing David, Saul camps in the middle of a valley and goes to sleep. And Saul is in the middle of the camp and everybody's in a big circle around him. David and Abishai, one of his cousins, go down in the middle of the night, crawl through the army, take Saul's spear and his water bottle. Abishai says, let me stick this guy to the ground. One spear stab, I won't have to strike him a second time. David says, don't touch the Lord's anointed. It's God will take care of him, we'll leave. They take his spear, they take his water bottle, they crawl out through the whole army and get on top of a mountain. And David says, hey, wake up. Abner, you're supposed to protect the king. You're asleep on the job. That is a capital crime. You should be executed. And he says this in a loud voice in front of the whole Israeli army, including the king, Saul. So Abner is publicly humiliated by David, told he should be executed for not protecting the king because he's got, David's got the king's spear, which proved he was there. So Abner didn't any big love for David at this point in time. The other reason why Abner's not a big fan of David is because David has a commander named Joab, and that's his nephew. So Abner says, you know, if I don't set up a kingdom up here north with me as the kingmaker, I'm out of a job. I can't take Joab's job for David, so I need to look out for number one here. So he takes the last living son of Saul, Ishbosheth, and makes him a puppet king. Abner's the power behind the throne, but he makes Ishbosheth the puppet king. By the way, Ishbosheth means man of shame. Isn't that inspiring? I mean, for a king, man of shame, right? So he was born after Saul became king. He's 40 years old. He's the last of Saul's sons, and apparently he's not a good enough soldier to go to battle. So this guy's not probably a really good leader. Everybody in Israel knows that Abner's the power behind the throne. And this is pretty normal procedure. You even see this around the world today. Anytime you see leadership transitions in non-democratically elected countries, there's only one thing you need to know. Only one thing. Which leader has the loyalty of the army? If you have the loyalty of the army, you're going to be the next leader. If you don't have the loyalty of the army, you better get out of Dodge before you disappear. Right? So that's the nature of how power transitions where there's not the rule of law. So whoever commands the loyalty of the army is the de facto ruler of the state, no matter who sits in the, in the, in the chair. Which, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to make a political commentary on North Korea, but it has struck me on more than one occasion that there might be a power behind the throne here that we can't see. Anyway, Abner puts Ishbosheth in the north on the east in Mahanaim. It's on the east side of the Jordan River. And it says that he reigned for two years. You need to understand that Abner's move to not ally himself with David led to a seven and a half year civil war. We'll talk about that next week. A lot of people died because Abner refused to submit to God's plan for the kingdom and he wanted his own plan for the kingdom. So Abner was pursuing his own interests and not God's interest, and it led to a seven and a half year civil war at that point. So Abner not only declared war on 
David, he really declared war on God and God's plan. The last point I'm going to make is probably one of the more difficult to understand, but it's so critical. It's this. God uses even the rebellion of his enemies to accomplish his purposes. God used Samuel's obedience to fulfill his purposes for Israel. <coughs> and equally, God used Saul's disobedience to fulfill his purposes for Israel. We're going to see for the next 12 weeks how God is going to use the obedience of David to fulfill his purposes and the disobedience of David equally to fulfill his purposes. We're going to see how God uses the disobedience of Abner to fulfill his purposes and the obedience of people who, throughout this narrative, do what God wants them to do. The principle is real simple. Human disobedience never thwarts God's purposes. I guess the most extreme example would be Satan. Satan opposes God and everything God stands for, right? And yet, Satan always cooperates with God's purposes. 100% of the time, Satan cooperates with God's purposes against his will. Romans 8, 28 says, God causes... How many things? Even evil to work together for good. And the reason I say that is sometimes we look in our lives and we have things in our life that we see absolutely no redeeming factor at all. How can you tell me the death of my child by a drunk driver, you're going to work together for good? That seems unredeemable. When a loved one winds up with a disease or, 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 or an enormously painful situation that doesn't get solved and resolved. When evil seems to triumph, when you look around the world and you say, the place is crazy. Leaders are making poorer and poorer decisions. Entire nation states seem to be falling morally off the edge of the cliff. How can it be that God is going to use that to bring about good and bring about his purpose? Your obedience or disobedience has absolutely nothing to do with whether God accomplishes his purposes. He's going to accomplish them with your obedience or with your disobedience. He will use both to accomplish his purposes. Which means when you look at leadership around the world and you say so-and-so is opposing God's purposes. Not successfully, they're not. However... Our choice to obey God or not disobey God has everything to do with our destiny. If you choose to obey God, you receive the blessings of obedience, yes? If you choose to disobey God, you receive the punishment of disobedience. But whether you disobey or obey, God's will is going to be done regardless. And I think that's where the sovereignty of God takes center stage because many times we look at circumstances and we're either encouraged or discouraged based on what we see. We look at the world around us and we go, my goodness, this whole place is just falling apart and it's terribly easy to get discouraged because we go, God, what are you going to do? 
You know, one of the most exciting things is God never ever says, whoops, I didn't see that coming. You will never hear that out of God's mouth. There is nothing that occurs. There is no rebellion or obedience or evil or good that God has not perfectly foreseen from eternity past and already knows precisely what will happen and how it will happen. So there are people in the world now in positions of power that are opposing God. And God will use them to accomplish his purposes. And he will receive glory, but they will receive judgment because they're in opposition to God. And God will use your and my obedience or disobedience to accomplish his purposes. But if you obey, you receive blessing, right? So we're going to see this principle at work over and over and over again. You will see how Abner's disobedience cost a seven-year civil war, and yet God engineered 100% of that to accomplish his divine purposes. Okay, before Marty comes up and does our prayer and praise, let me give you a summary. How we respond to God's grace determines our destiny. Obedience brings blessing and disobedience brings punishment. That is true. Number two, God enrolls everyone in manna in his training academy. <laughs> You're in the training academy and God has lessons for you this afternoon. And most of them are going to be in the form of Trials and troubles and problems and people. So when you run into a problem today, and you will, you say, okay, Lord, there's a lesson. Teach me. What am I supposed to learn? Always. And it's designed to make you more like Jesus, and you're enrolled for life. Number three, always ask God's counsel before making decisions. And then once you know what to do, then do it. Citizens fail when they value loyalty to leaders more than loyalty to God. And lastly, leaders fail when they put their own interests ahead of God's interests. And you all are leaders. You are parents and grandparents, to say the least. You are role models and examples for your children and grandchildren. Be good ones. Amen? Amen. All right. Now that you know, I do love you. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.